0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas. Articles, videos and podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Many take pride in their family, ancestors and social origins, and we think it wrong to forget our roots and where we came from. But can we justify these tribal allegiances? Or are they a source of conflict and division? Joining us this week to discuss tribal division, we're joined by post-colonial theorist Homi Bhabha, activist Yasmin Abdul-Majid, and political theorist David Miller,
2: So why do we have this innate need to belong to a tribe? What does it do for us?
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Hannah Dawson.
3: Can we justify our tribal allegiances or are they a source of conflict and division. And I shall begin by asking David to start.
2: Thanks, Anna. That's great. Um, so, well, all the evidence we have is that people are quite deeply tribal by nature. They're genetically programmed to find a group to identify with. Yet, at the same time, which group that is, is quite contingent. They can be pushed in one way or another. So, tribes may have started out as biological kin groups, but it's not difficult for us to transcend our ethnic origins and find new identities. So why do we have this innate need to belong to a tribe? What does it do for us? I think two things mainly. First, it allows us to put our individual life histories into a much bigger picture. Maybe there are some people who can get by with just an individual personal narrative, but for most of us, I think, particularly in an age in which religion has lost its power for most people, we need a bigger master narrative to make sense of our own lives, a story that begins in the past and projects into the future. And I think there's nothing sadder than being the very last member of your tribe, like the last person to speak a dying language. The other thing it does for us is it gives us a kind of recognition. We all crave to be respected. But it matters who's offering the respect. And the people who count are the people whose tribe we're part of. So, as you can see, I'm an academic. And what matters to me is the respect I get from other academics. Bus drivers probably think what I do is a complete waste of time. Maybe right. And it doesn't (laughs) bother me. That doesn't bother me. So now, why isn't it enough just to be respected as a human being? I think that's too empty a description. What about for your individual achievements? Well, that's fine if you're Usain Bolt or Ed Sheeran. But I think for most of us, there's nothing very special that we've achieved. So what matters is that we're seen as being a good enough member of the tribe that we belong to. So tribes do good things for their own members, but don't they create problems for outsiders? What about intertribal conflicts? Well, I think essentially these arise when one tribe poses a threat to the well-being or the very existence of another. So classically, tribe A invades the hunting grounds of tribe B. So the important thing is to give tribes a secure space to operate in. And the big problem occurs when a whole society divides along tribal lines, whether these are ethnic or religious or political, because then physical separation becomes impossible. That's what we want to avoid at all costs. And the way to do it is to have an inclusive identity so that people who have unavoidably to live together can all see themselves as belonging to one big tribe. And that's why I'm happy to call myself a liberal nationalist, because I see nation-building as the constructive way to the to respond to the human need to belong that I'm saying is inescapable.
3: Very good, thank you. (laughs) Deep 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 in thought, excellent. Yes, homie, very good.
4: Great, thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for being here today on this delightful (laughs) day. Um, I'm not even so sure that we should describe the conflicts we have today as tribal. First of all, I think the word tribal has a particular anthropological understanding of an ecology of people living together in different times than the ones we do. And I think mm. we've just got to say that, you know, uh, is this translation, is this metaphor the right one? Now, do we are we all really proud of our families? Are we all really proud of the nations we belong to? This is very simplistic. We love our parents, we hate our parents, our parents fuck us up. What did Philip Larkin say? That. Right? Uh, our parents sometimes fuck us up. Then we recover. Our nations we love. We, we fight uh, the, the, the patriotism of our nation because we think it's misguided. So I think that there are a whole complex set of feelings, even in the most intimate institutions of our lives. And that doesn't fit well with this narrow notion of, you know, you love where you came from. Many of us come from many different places in our lives, and each time, we embed or seed a certain kind of home. And I think that we've got to think about that in the world in which we live now. I also think that this idea of universal humanity doesn't really work. After all, it's a very important issue that we have in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but very often we think of universal humanity after we have persecuted people. After we persecute people, then we could set up these, you know, even in the Enlightenment, you know, after the Thirty Year War, you began to get the the, the, uh, issue of actually constituting nations. And this is my point. Nations are our tribes and the good and the evil come together because we are nations are our tribes how we constitute within a nation a set of convergent beliefs practices a sense of a sense of common purpose that's very important but at the moment we are seeing tribal nationalism and tribal nationalism is a term i get from Hannah Arendt, writing in a period very near, like our own, in the interwar period where you had mass migrations and nation states were either forming or being deconstructed. And what she says about tribal nationalism, I think, is something we have to urgently hear today. She says tribal nationalists or tribal national moments are constituted, often by large masculinist figures with 64 in chests who believe and this is the description that Mr. Modi gives of himself. I have a 64 in chest. I will take all the beatings for my people. I have a broad chest. Mr. Trump has his own uh, buffon by which he sort <laughs> of, you know, uh, holds up uh, n- no policy, no argument, but he does have this rather impressive bouffon, and he tries to live by it. So the whole issue really here is how do, we, how do we defeat this nationalist issue? And I just want to say that the best way to do this is to make ourselves aware of what the symptoms of it are. Whatever the economic discontents, whatever the failures of globalization, whatever the failures of the EU, why is it that in every country, every time the issue always comes up as my immigration, racism, ethnic policy, whatever the economic issues are, it is unquestionable that African-Americans in America do worse than white Uh, than the the oppressed and, in a way, suffering white populations. There's no question about that. Mexicans do worse. But somehow, as soon as we have, within the nation-state form, some forms of nationalism, it's always race, gender, sexuality, femininity, that begins to become the enemy of the people. And I think we've got to be very clear about that as a symptom. It's not the cause, it's the symptom. It's not the cause of Brexit. Mm. It's not the cause of the wall being built uh, between Mexico and the United States. I want to end actually uh, with a voice much finer than mine, a poem about, I believe, uh, a short poem about uh, populist nationalism or tribal nationalism by W.H. Auden, it's called Diaspora. How he survived them they could never understand. How the victim somehow survives the oppressor. That's what drives the tyrant man. How he survived them, they could never understand. Had they not beggared him themselves to prove they could not live without their dogmas or their land? No worlds they drove him from were ever big enough. How could it be the earth, the unconfined, meant when it bade them to set no limits to their love? On heat with fear, he drew their terrors to him and was a godsend to the lowest of mankind till there was no place left where they could still pursue him except that exile which they called his race. But envying him even that, they plunged right through him into a land of mirrors without time or space and all they had to strike now was the human face. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, and then finally, Yasmin. Thanks.
5: So I was born in Sudan, I was born in Khartoum, Sudan, and I grew up in Australia, and I now live in East London. But if you ask me what my tribe is, well, ladies and gentlemen and all in between, I'm a scouser, (laughs) you will never walk alone, right? And how is it that a kid born in Sudan, growing up in Australia, ends up a Scouser. How is that? And if you maybe look down your nose at me, I would probably think you're a Man United supporter. <laughs> That's how this pans out. I think it is an interesting question for us to talk about tribal belonging as if it's some theory that not all of us in this room ascribe to in some way. And I think for me, it's, we've kind of touched on the fact that it is a necessity almost. It is a neurological... Reality, Our brains were formed at a time when belonging to a tribe was literally about your physical protection. You had to depend on your tribe to protect you. And therefore, the reason why if if you were kind of on your own, you wouldn't survive, that was part of how we kept people together and alive. Obviously, we got to a point when the way that we organized our society became no longer sort of in small groups. We began living in large settlements. We began agriculture. And so the ways that we existed from a survival point of view changed. But I don't think our brains have changed as much. What we do have though, is the ability to choose what tribe we belong to consciously. And I think this is very important. Because I don't think the question is whether or not we can justify tribal allegiances. I, actu- I actually think it's a, non, a non-issue. Those tribal allegiances, those affinity biases, they exist whether we like them or not. Even the fact that you would say that tribal allegiances shouldn't exist makes you part of a tribe of people that think tribes shouldn't exist, ironically. And so the question then becomes, what basis do we want those tribes to exist by? And something that I don't think that is mentioned yet is the concept of power. Because sometimes, yes, conflict has occurred because one tribe, quote unquote, has infringed on another, but sometimes it's because some leader has taken too much of their own stuff, decided that their crew, their posse, their clique, their tribe, their people are the best, the most superior, and they want to export that to the rest of the world. And that has tended to be a hypermasculine thing, that has tended to be exacerbated through all sorts of warfare and types of warfare. And so perhaps the question isn't about tribes in of themselves or whatever grouping we want to use, asking the question, how can we design society to a point where we can share power as, as groups? Because I don't want to not be a Scouser. I fucking love it. I kneel at Stevie Gerrard and Kenny Douglas's feet. And for anyone to tell me that I shouldn't feel that way makes me angry, makes me upset, makes me say, why should your version of the truth be better than mine? but that doesn't mean that it allows me to hold power over somebody else or over another group. But how do we share power? Perhaps is one that I think goes to why we see things like tribal nationalism go out to the point that they do. And it is not just because people decide that they hate another, that does, it does not simply occur. Nobody wakes up one day and then decides they hate somebody who doesn't look like them leaders, those ones with the 64 inch chests, decide that for them to get as much power as they want, they shall create an other. And so it isn't necessarily about how we as part of groups decide who the other is, that other is designed for us. And the easiest things are race and gender and so on because they are easy markers but those are things that perhaps we can shift the goalposts around. And I often wonder, um, I do wonder that if leaders were female across the board throughout history, what that would look like. I think it is an interesting question to think about different forms or any other gender, shall I say, of leadership and what, and, and different forms of ideas of power. And for me, that is a more interesting question about whether or not a tribe should exist. Um, Because ultimately, all of this comes down to power. (laughs) Thank you,
3: thank you all three of you. Um, I wonder if we could start um, our discussion by digging into the question about whether it really is the case that tribalism or attachment to where we come from is essential to us as human beings, or whether it makes any sense to talk about anything being essential to anyone anyway, or whether it might equally be the case, for example, that just as it's essential and natural for me to love my children, it's also essential and natural for me to feel pity for the stranger that I see dying on the road. That, these, that we're multiple beings um, as humans and that we have all sorts of instincts and things that are natural to us. And is it really the case that this is, as it were, the most natural, this, this um, sense of belonging? I don't know, Yasmin, whether you want to begin.
5: I'm, I mean, I'm not sure natural is the most helpful term right it may be unnatural for us to like sit on toilets and go to the (laughs) the loo right but we have decided that for a civilised society that is what's required and so the idea of going back to what's natural perhaps is not the most useful maybe it's about what is the most useful thing for a cohesive society that is made up of of lots of different groups of people I genuinely think that it is difficult for us as humans to not exist as parts of groups right whether it is your nationality, your university, your family, I think we tend to find groups. People who move to London, friends of mine who move to London and haven't found their group, they, they talk about the loneliness and the depression and the mental illness that comes from being alone. We're not good at being alone. We're not good at not belonging. So I think, from a health point of view, it is essential to belong to some sort of group. What we then do about it is not say because I belong to that group, I shall have no empathy for anyone outside my group. I think it is then incumbent upon us as a society to say, actually, you can choose what group you belong to, but you also must have empathy for those outside your group. do you want
4: Yeah, I hate being alone. I hate being alone. I love groups and I love contacts. And I believe that both my intellectual life and my moral life and my personal life is entirely relational. I believe that's the aspect of my most treasured feelings. I am not sure that we need to think about this in tribalist terms. That's my only worry. I think that we all belong to communities. We love community values, community ethics. But until we can think about the fact that we are also these relations are made, I think as both of you said in different ways, through institutions, through political forms, through cultural uh, through cultural sites, through our education, it's a very it's a kind of a montage. It's a very brilliant putting together of all kinds of things. and to reduce it to tribalism, whether that is pride in the family or pride in your home, which of course exists. But we have very complex feelings. So I think that what we really need to do is to think through to think through the way in which nation states, generally, despite globalization and so on, which nation states have allowed and curated for us, curated groups and selves as having a sense of belonging. Mm. And I think that's the important thing. And with migration, we need to now shift this notion Uh, with vast migration of course it's happened for many years we do need to balance the sense of the cosmopolitical with the national political because both exist and both coexist but there has to be important give and take in any democratic society
1: do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers and there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
3: Thank you. David, how would you respond to the charge, to the the problem with prioritizing the nation over other conflicting intersecting groups?
2: So I would certainly say that um, from an individual point of view, there's no reason to give one of your many identities priority. I think that the nation is important only really from a political perspective as a way of organising large numbers of people in a cooperative manner. Um, So think about how democracy first evolved. It first evolved in small communities within the walls of city-states and then over time units became larger. And the question arose, how can we actually form some kind of political community talking to each other, trying to understand each other? And I think it's at that point that the idea of forming a nation with a kind of set of narratives and a culture that distinguishes it from others became important. So can I just say something else about this um, interesting question about why now we're um, talking so much about tribes and what it is that we find worrying about this. I think it's the idea that we're forming exclusive tribes, that we're forming our own self-enclosed universes of knowledge where things that come in from the outside, we filter out. We no longer see people. We no longer hear people outside of the tribe. And it's that, I think. It's not the actual belonging to a tribe that's the problem, but when it becomes, when when the... Edges become so hard that we can't actually relate to people beyond. So I'm I'm with um, uh, Yasmin and so on that we must also, of course, always be able to look beyond and see people outside.
3: But isn't it an illusion to think that you can, as it were, be happily um, invested in your nation and not then to set up a problematic hierarchy of them and us?
2: Well, I think you you will always... um, if you if you if you're if you're a member, you will always give a certain you'll always be partial. You'll give a certain kind of priority to the, to people you're who are in your tribe. That's that I think is part of what it means. You you're, you're loyal to the people that you uh, you share the tribe with. But that does not mean that um, you're you're going to be indifferent to outsiders. So here's one piece of evidence. I mean, if you look at which countries have been the most generous in terms of foreign aid and so on, it's very often the ones who have the strongest sense of their own identity, as, as, as Swedes, for example. Is it example. that they have a
3: strong sense of their own identity or their own responsibility in a global community? I'm going to um, pass the um, question to Yasmin.
5: Yeah, I think the, um, the f- to the first point about the nation state, I find very fascinating because who gets to, ultimately for me, it's about who gets to decide who is part of the nation, right? I was born one place, bred somewhere else, lived somewhere else, where, where do I belong exactly? Everyone who speaks to me about this concept of a nation and must belonging to a nation and the allegiance to a nation has the luxury of being born into a particular place that has looked after them or not, but they feel that they are secure in, right? And there is no question about that. And there, are, there is a diaspora around the world who doesn't have that luxury. And anyone who says that the world is borderless has the right passport. Right the world <laughs> the world is not borderless if you've got a <laughs> Sudanese passport yeah. let me tell you right my my cousins couldn't even visit me in Australia because it was deemed some sort of risk or they would not want to return so the the concept of a nation state i think needs to be challenged or interrogated but my th- i guess the other point is that we have created this binary that there must be, or a false dichotomy, I would argue, that there must be like an us and them, or if I am part of a nation, then I must think this way about And I think, yes, maybe historically that has existed, but we also can evolve. Democracy was something that a group of people decided, you know what, we want to change the way that we do business here, so let's design a better system. And I think our challenge is to say, there's a, and you may know more of this than I do, but it's a, there's a really interesting, when you look at post-colonial nations and the leaders of post-colonial nations, when they've come up, they want to sort of fight for independence, et cetera, et cetera, then they get to positions of power and they treat others in the exact same way that they were treated because we have no real alternative, perhaps, models of power. We actually, historically, have struggled. So I think the challenge is, all right, we're all evolved beings, we have to create new models of organizing or better models or re-encourage the habit of democracy or other forms of government that allow us to organise in ways that are not about a false dichotomy.
3: Thank you, and I want to come to you, but can I also um, append a question to you, which is, I think there, that, are, many, I many know, there are so questions. many things you want to, I know, <laughs> but can I add one, yeah, which is um, that I think you have a, an interest, and I'd like to hear you talk about it, in um, explaining why it is that we are living at a moment where we seem to be um, increasingly tribal.
4: Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry with my love for this pa- for everything on this panel. I really think that the word "tribal" yes. is a distraction from very important issues: migrants, citizenship. These are the, these are very important concepts, you know. It's very often, our prejudices and our powers, very often our the hegemonies as well as our resistance comes from being citizens. And you know, you're abs- you're right that. that that there are no borderless, uh, that that nations have borders. But of course, many people who move, like you and me, move because we want to belong somewhere else where we feel more productive for whatever reason. Doesn't mean I don't adore Bombay, I adore Bombay to death. But it, it does mean that I moved first to England and then to the States. So let us respect the fact that each time we move, there is a nation state, there is a community, which we feel serves us better. So let's not be embarrassed about that. And I think that citizenship rather than tribalism is the important way to go. Let me just say that there is one way of thinking about opening up the nation to the issues of migration, to the issues of global inequality, which is to think of the past and the present. To think that that most nations were constructed, and John Stuart Mill is, of course, the, the master of this moment, were constructed when empires were being constituted. So when we think about cosmopolitanism today, when we think about the hospitality to the migrant, and we have to think not in individual terms, we also have to think in institutional terms. When we think of contemporary notions of nationhood, then and or cosmopolitanism, we have to be able to think about the pasts upon which the nation state was built. You know, John Stuart Mill says somewhere, I am a Democrat in my country and I'm a despot in somebody else's country. What does that make of me? And I think that's the question that Trump, that's the question that Modi, that's the question that most of the tribal nationalists today should face. We are constructed in this problem. And unless we see that contradiction, we're not going to go anywhere. So when we think about them and us, the them is the us. The migrants, the people who come, post-colonials who come and settle or required, demand respect, demand a certain security because they don't get it, they also belong to a history, a long history of the modern world, which was a history of slavery and civility. Colonialism, barbarism and civility. Why can we not face the fact that the Enlightenment, as we understand it, or liberalism, was constituted from this. And I think if we see that internal scission or internal confrontation, it's not a fragmentation, we can actually become much truer citizens to ourselves and the nations which we, to which we belong, and much truer in our hospitality and our understanding of conditions across the world and the in new interdependencies. Let us not forget that globalization may create technological connectivity But globalization has constructed its own forms of poverty, inequality. So it's not as if these inequalities are only left over from the concept of the Westphalian state. There are new forms of inequality that have been constructed through the global. So it seems to me that some form of enlightened cosmopolitanism that understands that the history of nations is also the history of slavery, also the history of colonization, and that the peoples from elsewhere, foreigners, are part of that long history, and it is our responsibility to create a democratic structure to create a form of cosmopolitan conversation intersecting with our national sense of our belonging, and to actually only through that way can we move forward and I'm convinced that that is very important to answer your question very very quickly, I think I partly answered it there are these Enormous inequalities now, new yes. inequalities in the global world that make people want to cling on to the things they feel safest about. But remember this. we have So we have two forms of tribal nationalism. We have the ISIS idea. We have to cling to a certain text or to a certain religion or to a certain politics on a small scale. Very different from, but part of a continuum, the Trumpian idea. That's the, you know, the two scales, as it were, of, a certain, kind of uh, an, uh, a certain kind of tribal nationalism. We've got to break that down. There's one very important issue that has emerged in politics today. We used to think about equality in relation to anti-discrimination and rights. And I think that's extraordinarily important. But equally now, there is a discourse which is fast catching uh, the, the, the public mind. Which is the lang- about the language of dishonor and indignity. Mr. Trump is, of course, a master at this. So is Erdogan in Turkey. So are people in this country. And that way of, dis- of, of de dignifying people, of humiliating people, has become a big vote catch. Yes. So say whatever you want. And I think that is less to do with the rights of citizens and more to do with the rights of man. It's almost a saying- Or, or other or women Or yeah. women, yeah. I, uh, man, I was using man in that old generic term for- which. I think I'm
3: we not need to be move beyond that, yeah. that old usage.
4: Of course, of course. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, but I think that we need to now understand why is abuse so attractive? Yes. Why is abuse so
3: Yes, attractive? yes. Well, maybe we might kind of gather both of your thoughts. I mean, something that you've both done, um, I think, David, you'll agree, is introduce the crucial concept of power into our understanding about what it might mean to belong. So it might not be the case that we want to value belonging as belonging, because, of course, if, for example, you are a member of an oppressive group... Um, there's something very problematic in the way that you feel like you belong to that, whether it's white supremacy or whatever. But of course, if you're part of an oppressed group, um, then it's extremely important and valuable to be able to identify and feel solidarity amongst that group. So I think, so I think one question that, um, that exactly w- w- we need to ask you about, David, is how to think about power in relation to the value of belonging
2: wow <laughs> big question Hannah. thank you um i mean i'm resistant to the idea that the identities we have are just constructed by power i know that's a tempting thought that they're all artificially constructed by the powerful but one piece of evidence against that is if you think of the history of eastern europe in the post-war period, the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, and so on. There you have strong states with massive ideological apparatus. And yet, in the end, they were not able to forge the kind of unity that was supposed to exist among the constituent peoples. So as soon as uh, Yugoslavia began to lose the central control, people began then to regain and reassert these smaller identities that were very important to them. So I think there was something that was going on there. So there's been some suggestions about the um, way that um, tribal nationalism is fermented by leaders. And of course, that's true. And leaders have rhetorical devices to encourage that kind of thinking. But I think that when they do that, there's always something that they're responding to. You couldn't do it just starting from scratch. So even Trump is latching on to something that's out there. And I think that what often, since uh, we've m- mentioned this gentleman uh, already, I think that often what he's latching on to uh, is something that I mentioned, I think, in, towards the end of my little speech, which was that um, tribes, turn nasty when they think they're under threat. And this is exactly what somebody like- they liked, ought to be threatened? Well, like the
3: white supremacists?
4: Can I, can I just say something?
3: <laughs> Hang
2: on. <to> <laughs> okay, okay.
3: <It's,
4: laughs> Although- David is absolutely right. The, the, the idea of tribal nationalism is to say the majority is threatened by you, who are the minority, whereas the minority is threatened. And in fact, David is also right that it's not simply a simplistic notion of power, Power comes with authority. What happened in the ex-Soviet Union was people had power, but they didn't have authority (laughs) with the people. I think we must make a distinction between power and authority if we're going to get anywhere in this discussion.
3: Yasmin, do you have something you'd like to? No. No. Um, I mean, I did, but now I've
0: forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most important things are always forgotten,
4: <laughs> like in the psychoanalytic <laughs> session. You always forget just as you're about to leave.
3: <laughs> I think that that is a very good cue for us to open um, the discussion up to the audience. Oh, actually, I do. Oh, oh here sorry, we go. Uh, hello, see, hello, hello, hi.
5: Yes. Um, what I wanted to say was, and I guess this is um, more about us as individuals in this conversation and thinking about how. You know, as as citizens, we um, think about the society that we want to design. And I think it's super important that, and I mentioned this word earlier and I'll mention it again, that we have empathy for those who disagree with us, because I think what tends to happen, and again, I will go, I come, you know, born in Sudan and have seen my parents left Sudan because of, of the what the leadership of post-colonial nations tend to do. Um, is that you become, you use the same rhetoric that uh, you think it's justified to use the same rhetoric that you're hearing about yourself to others. We are very happy in, in sort of like quote unquote cosmopolitan progressive leftist circles to sort of say these people are ignorant, they're, they're unable to read, they're this, they're this, they're this. And I, I, every time I see that, I think, oh, this is dangerous. It is so dangerous for us for whatever group that you find yourselves in to start using dehumanising language to those you disagree with. Because what on earth makes you think that you are better? What on earth makes you think that when you have the power, you will act in a better way? We are all human and we are all, I'm not ever going to be like, la la la, we're all part of the same human race, rah, whatever. But when we do feel under threat, we do start to use dehumanising language. And we like to think we're right. And in the same way that we believe we are right, they believe they are right. When was the last time any of us changed our minds about anything? (laughs) (laughs) Or be like homies? (laughs) But Yasmin, both parties might not be right. I mean, anyway, we could... No, but but precisely... (laughs) But, like, I agree, but also, also... Like, I think it's important for us to... You might think that you're right, but that does not give you the right to dehumanize. Of course and not. And it's so important. Yes. It's so important. Anyway. By talking it is about a the rights
4: like, of men, I was I, not dehumanizing women. No, no. like I was, also, <laughs> no, it was, I was about only like referring <laughs> to that particular document, which is called yes. the rights of men. And if yes. I had called it the rights of women, nobody would have understood what I was talking about. <laughs> yes. I just
5: wanted... It's yes. a whole other conversation. Yes.
3: Yes. The dark side of the enlightenment, that's it. All right, fantastic. Well, we have come to the um, end of our time um, and, um, and it's been lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks to our speakers. Okay.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Phelps. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.